The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 4, verses 5 through 30. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sica, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you said, say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Wes. That's a lot of words. Appreciate that. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, A blessed, rich uh, Palm Sunday to you. Uh, Holy Week is uh, such a marvelous uh, week uh, with so much paradox in it, and I, I hope that your heart is able and ready to enter into to all that's there, uh, what Scotty Smith calls the rapture and the rupture of the gospel. And today we'll talk uh, a little bit about uh, the rupture aspect leading to Jesus' journey to the cross, and then of course next Sunday the rapture, the resurrection. Uh, like every good sermon, I need to start this one with Garth Brooks. Uh, Garth Brooks has a song uh, where he talks about going on down to the oasis, right? And there are a couple of things you can count on when you go on down to the oasis. Heavy drinking and friends in low places. And what we've got in the fourth chapter of John is a different kind of oasis where people go for a drink. Uh, There's a well there called Jacob's Well. Uh, And Jesus shows himself to be a friend, especially to people in low places and from low places, like this Samaritan woman at the well. So, if you think of yourself, among other things, as a sinner and or as a sufferer, Uh, If you think of yourself as somebody who is sometimes defeated, defective, maybe even ashamed, then what Jesus offers to this woman is also something that He offers to you today. Now, if you don't see yourself as a sinner or as a sufferer, you might not be very interested uh, in the things that Jesus is holding out. But I suspect that everybody on some level in this room feels like at some point, at some time, you are, you have been, you will be a sinner and or a sufferer. And so, good news. Jesus likes to make friends and keep friends in low places. And and He puts Himself forward not only as the giver of an oasis, but as the oasis Himself. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, if anybody has thirst, if anybody's thirsty, let that person come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of that person's heart will flow rivers of living water. So, Jesus is addressing thirsty souls here. And there are three pain points that uh, He goes straight after. And these are pain points that we tend to avoid when we see them in ourselves and in other people, but Jesus runs straight toward them. Regret, hurt, and fear. Uh, So, let's start with regret. Here's what Jesus demonstrates with this encounter with the woman at the well. There is no sinner who is so hideous that he or she is beyond the reach of His grace. No sinner so hideous that they're beyond the reach of Jesus' grace. So, here's one of the things I love the most about the Bible. The Bible is history, and it's specifically a rich history of how God shows kindness to sinners and sufferers. He shows kindness to sinners 
and suffers. It's what I love about the Bible. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what makes Christianity the standalone religion among all world religions and the standalone philosophy among all world philosophies, if you can even call Christianity a religion or a philosophy. See, because religion says, clean up your act and you might be accepted. And, you know, leap over this wall, you know, get yourself to the point where you can leap over this wall and, and, and you'll be received, whereas Christianity says, Jesus meets you on the ground. He, he meets people who, who don't even have the legs to leap with, who don't even have the will to take one step forward. Jesus goes after that person, and it's His kindness that leads that person to change. His kindness leads people to repent. It's not our repentance that lead Him to be kind. It's His kindness that leads us to repent or to do an about-face with our lives. So this woman is carrying a lot of burdens, and, 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 and the heaviest burdens that she carries are much heavier than a big ceramic jug of water. These burdens are what you could call guilt and shame. Guilt is the bad feelings we get about things we've done, things we regret, things we wish we could go back and change. Shame is the bad feeling we get about the people we assume that we are because of the things that we've done. And so, so this woman shows her guilt and shame with a question. She says, it to, she says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So I want to focus on those three words, me, a woman from Samaria, a woman. Verse 27, it says that the disciples who are, who are onlookers to this whole conversation marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman, especially this woman. Why would they marvel? So the rabbis who, who dictated value structures and value systems and hierarchies and who was to be regarded as important and who was to be regarded as insignificant, who the people were who mattered and the people that were easily overlooked and, and, and should be overlooked. And disturbingly, the rabbis didn't like the idea of, of any man ever speaking on any level with a woman who's not his wife or his mother or his daughter in private, and Jesus breaks that code here. Um, but even more disturbing, women were treated in that day and in that part of the world as inferior to men. Actually, a very famous, oft-repeated prayer from the rabbis. They would stand up in the temple and they would pray, thank you, my God, that I am not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. And then the third thing is that any woman, according to the rabbis, who, who had had more than three husbands for any reason, even if she'd just been widowed time and time again, uh, was to be considered damaged goods, was to be considered defective, unclean. So, woman. Second, Samaritan. How could you talk to a Samaritan like me? So, people in that day and age, anybody who would have been in the original audience of the New Testament or in earshot of Jesus' teaching would have known that there was significant, long-standing racial tension and religious tension between Jews and Samaritans. 
And this woman says, how could you, a Jew, be talking to me, a woman from Samaria? What are you doing here in Samaria in the first place? Because Samaritans, what they did was that they, they, they took the, 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 the Jewish religion and the Jewish history and the Jewish scriptures, and from the Jewish perspective, they, they poached it, they stole it, and then they co-opted it into their own pagan way. And so, so they, they blended Judaism with paganism. And, and for them, that's like taking a Sharpie pen and, and just scribbling across a, you know, a Van Gogh you know, painting, you know, at, at the Frist Museum. You know, the Jews believed that the Samaritans desecrated their sacred teachings. And that there was such a hostility. We see it even in the disciples in the ninth chapter of, of Luke when there's some Samaritans around and the disciples look at Jesus and say, why don't you call fire down on these people? Just get rid of them. So, why are you talking to a Samaritan? And then finally, why are you talking to me? To me. So this woman would have been regarded in the same way that Hester Prynne was regarded in Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, The Scarlet Letter. Remember The Scarlet Letter? She had to wear uh, an A uh, for adultery on her, um, on her clothing as she went out in public. That was her sentence for becoming pregnant without being married. And so, when Jesus enters this conversation with this woman about the men in her life, this is a woman who's been shunned as well. And what he does is he puts a thumb on that bruise and, and applies some pressure to the bruise that's on her heart. And he says to her, you know, because she says, I have no husband. And he says, well, you've spoken truthfully. You've actually had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. You speak what is true when you say that you have no husband. And so that narrative in that culture is a narrative of guilt and shame. You can't escape from it, which is why she shows up to the well by herself. So they carried these big, like these big, you know, clay, you know, ceramic type pots. They were huge. Like they carried gallons, and usually women would come together and carry you know, two or three of them would, would carry one of those containers because it was so heavy, and, and they would come in the cool of the day in the morning or the cool of the day in the afternoon. But here, this woman is in the middle of the day, burning sunshine, burning heat, carrying the burden of that water all by herself. Why? Why would she come at the hottest part of the day? Because she she knows that that's the way she can avoid the other women whose lives were a bit more together, who were the mean girls, you know, who, who would talk openly and gossip openly about her and why she had such a tarnished reputation and make her the brunt of their jokes and, and of their gossip and of the town chatter and, and raise their eyebrows whenever she would walk into social space. You could call her the town tramp, the, the town dog, kind of like that dog who, who, you know, people adopt the dog at the, at the animal shelter and regret it, take the dog back, and the, the, the dog's going back and forth between this animal shelter because nobody really wants the dog. That's kind of how she feels about her life. But what does Jesus do with this woman of Samaria? He shows up. He befriends her, 
and he restores to her the dignity that she'd never lost. How does he do that? First, he asks her for a drink. Realize what's happening here. For her to give him a drink, she's got to take her jar, which had been on her lips, and, and, and fill it with water and hand it to him with her hands. Her hands by the rabbis would be considered unclean. Her lips by the rabbis would be considered morally dirty. And here Jesus is just taking the water. Disciples are watching. She's watching. They're all marveling. You're not unclean to me. And then, you know, even the exposure of her history. You know, you've had five husbands, the man you're living with now, not your husband. Somehow that's a pleasant experience to her. Because what does she do afterwards? She goes into the city and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Who told me all the things that I ever did. And they rehearsed her story together. You've had five men. The guy you're with now, not your husband. Isn't it great, you guys? He knows all these things about me. Why, why, is she ha- why does she have enthusiasm about this? Because for the first time in her life, she's exposed and not rejected. For the first time, somebody talks to her about the unvarnished truth about her life and about her history and doesn't forsake her, doesn't take her back to the pound doesn't treat her like a dog. And this whole word Samaritan, he doesn't just redeem her, he redeems the word Samaritan. When when Jesus' contemporaries heard the word Samaritan, they thought, oh, dirty, oh, call fire down on those people, humiliate them, destroy them, be finished with them. But when we now hear the word Samaritan, what do we think? We think of compassionate people. We think of people who exercise mercy, who show up for people in the ditch. That's what Samaritan means to us and to the rest of the world now. Why? Because of a parable that Jesus told that that made the Samaritan the compassionate hero of the story. We also think of the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Jerusalem, Judea, oh, that makes sense. Those are our friends. Oh, but I want you to go to the friends in low places. I want you to make some friends in low places too. I want you to go to Samaria. I want you to go to them and share the good news of Christ with them and then to the ends of the earth. That's what we think of Samaria. So he's redeemed the word, even as he redeems the person. So there's this song lyric. It's, it's, it's a wonderful song lyric. Uh, happens to be one of those lyrics that was co-written by a couple of people who attend our church. And it's a husband singing to a wife, and here's one of the lyrics. If you ever feel like you are not enough, I'm going to break all your mirrors. What a great lyric. Jesus is breaking this woman's mirrors. He's reversing every negative shame and guilt verdict that she carries in her head and heart about herself. As if to say to her, Yes, you are so sinful and broken that I have to die for you, but you are so cherished and so dearly loved and so treasured that I am glad to die for you. Your value is not determined by what society thinks of you. Your value is not determined by what you think of you. I'm going to break all your mirrors 
I who speak to you am the one. You know, the, the man that you've been looking for in all of these men, I am he. Behold, I am the fulfillment of all your longings. I am the answer to all your dreams. I am this Christ who has only been a rumor to you. I am he. I who speak to you am he. The oasis for every regret. Jesus reverses negative verdicts for people who carry shame and guilt. That is awesome. He's also the oasis for every hurt because there is no sufferer who is so damaged that that person is beyond the reach of his mercy. This woman has blisters on her feet, no doubt, and she's got even bigger blisters on her heart. Five husbands in her past. In those days, women did not leave and divorce men. So one of two things happened with these five men, either widowhood or abandonment. Probably a combination of both. And now she's living with a guy and says, I have no husband. What does that mean, especially in that society? You need to understand, like in, in Western, modern society, cohabitation outside of marriage, it's, it's kind of normative in our society. It was scandalous in those days. And what is being communicated here is that she has settled for the status of a dog with the man that she lives with now. What's she doing? She's responding to a go-fetch request. There are no women who are going to go help her carry this incredibly heavy water container. Why isn't the guy going with her to either carry it himself or to carry it with her? Because she's more of a dog to him. She's more of a, a, a service animal to him than she is a woman to be cherished. You can share my bed, but not my name. You are worthless. You are worth less. She's being treated more like a pet than a partner. Can you imagine? This is the common self-understanding of women and girls who have been used, abused, devalued, and dishonored. I don't know if you've heard of Rachel Denholander. Rachel was one of the uh, gymnasts at a university that was exposed for uh, serial abuse of women over the course of years in the gymnastics program. And she was the lead person to, to bring this story public and to bring it to justice. She's also an attorney. And now she does all kinds of advocacy work for especially women who have been abused and exploited. And she wrote a book called, What's a Girl Worth? And in that book, she says this about her own story as she processed her own sense of shame, not by what she had done, but because of what had been done to her. And she said, I had to remember that my identity and healing were not dependent on the voices that surrounded me, and that the truth was not dependent on popular opinion or cultural responses. I had to focus on what was real and true. 
She also writes as a Christian. And so she knows the very same thing that this woman in Samaria came to know as well. The one who is real and true. I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the one who is real and true. Jesus cares nothing about, about what Samaritan or Jewish society say or think about this woman. What does he do? He leans in, he drinks from her cup, and then he offers himself the realest and truest name there ever was. You've heard rumors of the Christ, of the Messiah. You've heard rumors of the man of your dreams. I who speak to you am he. And then he makes her into an ambassador, sends her back into her city, back in her, into her town. And what does she say? Come and see. Come and drink from the water that I have drank from and thirst no more. Jesus is always doing this. In a society that devalued and diminished women on a regular basis, he's always elevating these women, you guys. Next Sunday is Easter. We will be reminded once again that the person that the God of the universe chose to be the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ was Mary Magdalene, who became an ambassador to the ambassadors, an apostle to the apostles. The angel of the Lord said, go tell the others, and Peter, who's failed me terribly, go tell the others, and Peter, I'm coming to them, that I who speak to you am, in fact, he. Mary Magdalene had a history of her own. She'd been possessed by demons. Some Bible scholars believe that she had also been a sex worker. Who knows about that? That's more speculation. But it's quite clear from Scripture that he had, she had been tormented by the forces of evil and darkness. But he doesn't just turn her into an ambassador. He turns this woman into a famous woman. You know, ever since, a couple thousand years later still, here we are right now on the, at the ends of the earth, and her story is being told just like it has been all over the world in every generation ever since this happened. This woman who is treated as invisible by her own people is now known throughout the world. And even Samaritan is a sweet sound to our ears because of this episode. He's the oasis for every hurt. Finally, I'm going to sprint to the finish line here. He's the oasis for every fear because there is no loss so final that it's beyond the reach of his sufficiency. And so, so the loss we're talking about here is, is what Bonhoeffer called a wish dream. We all have a wish dream. You know, this thing that we have in mind, this thing that we fantasize about. If only I could have this. And for this, this woman, it was, if only I could have a husband who loves me and won't leave me. I don't know what your five marriages and one cohabitation mean for you. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's your reputation, some kind of influence for your career to go certain places. I don't know what it is for your children to turn out a certain way. I don't know what it is for you. But everybody's got these wish dreams needling at us, telling us, I can be the Christ for you. I can be the one for you. 
And, and, and it's like trying to satisfy you know, your, your, your deep thirst from being out in the sun at the ocean by guzzling down salt water from the ocean. It's just going to dehydrate you. It's not going to satisfy your thirst. It's going to make you more thirsty. That's how these wish dreams, or the Bible calls them idols, work. Albert Einstein defined insanity this way. He said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that's the story of this dear woman's life. The Bible compares this kind of behavior to a dog returning to its own vomit. It's when we say, I can't be happy unless, and then whatever is on the other side of that unless, if it's not Jesus, eventually it's going to, you know, like Johnny Cash said, let us down and make us hurt. That's really Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails song, a uh, little music history there, showing off to my Nashville music friends. Um, but Johnny Cash popularized the song, right? I will let you down, I will make you hurt. That's the story of everything in the universe except for Jesus, if you look to that thing or that person or that place to be the one for you. Hard truths, but real truths. Why do we keep returning to dry wells that will not commit to us, that will not forgive us when we fail them, and that will not live for us and, by golly, will not die for us? Why do we keep returning to those wells if the, as if they are the one, if, as if they are the answer? Jesus is the well. little Bible trivia for you. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all three of them met their wives, their future wives, at a well. There's something very significant about what's going on here, because there's a conversation about our fathers and your fathers, and Isaac and Jacob and Moses are fathers to both Samaritanism and Judaism. And where did our fathers meet their future wives, but as well. So, Jesus' invitation is a lot more than an invitation. It is a proposal. I want to be wed to you. I will be faithful to you when you're unfaithful to me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am the answer to all your dreams. I am the man you've always been looking for. I am the one who will fill the hole in your heart that will slake your thirst. And what's the bride price that he pays? for that marriage to sinners and sufferers who say yes to what He has to offer. On the cross, Jesus said these words. This is the second time Jesus said these words, I'm thirsty. Once He said it to the Samaritan woman at the well, will you give me a drink? And then He said it on the cross, I thirst, and they gave Him vinegar before they crucified Him, before they killed Him, while they were crucifying Him. And there was also a sourness of vinegar that, 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 that was injected into his heart and into his soul instead of that living water, you know, leading him to cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is, of course, a direct quotation from the 22nd Psalm, which also includes these words, I am poured out like water, my mouth is dried up, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death, dogs surround me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Jesus Christ was treated like a dog in order to make people like her and sinners and sufferers like you and me queens and ambassadors 
and memorable. And so now what does he do? He says, you know what? I'm done asking you for a drink, but I've got one for you. And I've also got some food for you as well. My body and my blood given for you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the way that you break our mirrors when we are overcome with guilt and shame and regret and hurt, Lord, sin and suffering. We thank you, Lord, that, that you don't meet us at the top of some you know, building or um, in some inaccessible place or on top of some unscalable wall or on the other side of that wall. You meet us on the ground. You meet us in the heat of the day, in the face of every regret, every hurt, every fear that we carry. And you remind us that you are the one that we've always been looking for. You are the answer to our dreams. You are the one who fills the hole in our hearts. And so do that now, even as you feed us with your body and your blood, we pray. Set this bread and this cup apart. Uh, strengthen us, nourish us uh, with what's in them physically, but especially with what's in them spiritually in your very real presence with us now through the living water of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.